Part 2 of An Introduction to Metaphysics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Introduction to Metaphysics by Henri Bergson. Translated by T. E. Halm. Part 2. There is one reality, at least, which we all seize from within, by intuition and not by simple analysis. It is our own personality in its flowing through time, our self which endures. We may sympathize intellectually with nothing else, but we certainly sympathize with our own selves. When I direct my attention inward to contemplate my own self, supposed for the moment to be inactive, I perceive at first, as a crust, solidified on the surface, all the perceptions which come to it from the material world. These perceptions are clear, distinct, juxtaposed or juxtaposable one with another. They tend to group themselves into objects. Next, I notice the memories which more or less adhere to these perceptions and which serve to interpret them. These memories have been detached, as it were, from the depth of my personality, drawn to the surface by the perceptions which resemble them. They rest on the surface of my mind without being absolutely myself. Lastly, I feel the stir of tendencies and motor habits, a crowd of virtual actions, more or less firmly bound to these perceptions and memories. All these clearly defined elements appear more distinct from me, the more distinct they are from each other. Radiating, as they do, from within outwards, they form, collectively, the surface of a sphere which tends to grow larger and lose itself in the exterior world but if I draw myself in from the periphery towards the center, if I search in the depth of my being that which is most uniformly, most constantly, and most enduringly myself, I find an altogether different thing. There is, beneath these sharply cut crystals and this frozen surface, a continuous flux which is not comparable to any flux I have ever seen. There is a succession of states, each of which announces that which follows and contains that which precedes it. They can, properly speaking, only be said to form multiple states when I have already passed them and turned back to observe their track. Whilst I was experiencing them, they were so solidly organized, so profoundly animated with a common life, that I could not have said where any one of them finished or where another commenced. In reality, no one of them begins or ends, but all extend into each other. This inner life may be compared to the unrolling of a coil, for there is no living being who does not feel himself coming gradually to the end of his roll, and to live is to grow old. But it may just as well be compared to a continual rolling up, like that of a thread on a ball, for our past follows us, it swells incessantly with the present that it picks up on its way, and consciousness means memory. But actually it is neither an unrolling nor a rolling up, for these two similes evoke the idea of lines and surfaces whose parts are homogeneous and superimposable on one another. Now, there are no two identical moments in the life of the same conscious being. Take the simplest sensation, suppose it constant, absorb in it the entire personality. The consciousness which will accompany this sensation cannot remain identical with itself for two consecutive moments, because the second moment always contains, over and above the first, 
the memory that the first has bequeathed to it. A consciousness which could experience two identical moments would be a consciousness without memory. It would die and be born again continually. In what other way could one represent unconsciousness? It would be better, then, to use as a comparison the myriad-tinted spectrum with its insensible gradations leading from one shade to another. A current of feeling which passed along the spectrum, assuming in turn the tint of each of its shades, would experience a series of gradual changes, each of which would announce the one to follow, and would sum up those which preceded it. Yet even here the successive shades of the spectrum always remain external one to another. They are juxtaposed, they occupy space. But pure duration, on the contrary, excludes all idea of juxtaposition, reciprocal externality, and extension. Let us then rather imagine an infinitely small elastic body, contracted, if it were possible, to a mathematical point. Let this be drawn out gradually in such a manner that from the point comes a constantly lengthening line. Let us fix our attention not on the line as a line, but on the action by which it is traced. Let us bear in mind that this action, in spite of its duration, is indivisible if accomplished without stopping, that if a stopping point is inserted, we have two actions instead of one, that each of these separate actions is then the indivisible operation of which we speak, and that it is not the moving action itself which is divisible, but, rather, the stationary line it leaves behind it, as its track in space. Finally, let us free ourselves from the space which underlies the movement in order to consider only the movement itself, the act of tension or extension, in short, pure mobility. We shall have this time a more faithful image of the development of our self in duration. However, even this image is incomplete, and, indeed, every comparison will be insufficient, because the unrolling of our duration resembles in some of its aspects the unity of an advancing movement, and in others the multiplicity of expanding states. And, clearly, no metaphor can express one of these two aspects without sacrificing the other. If I use the comparison of the spectrum with its thousand shades, I have before me a thing already made, whilst duration is continually in the making. If I think of an elastic which is being stretched, or of a spring which is extended or relaxed, I forget the richness of color characteristic of duration that is lived, to see only the simple movement by which consciousness passes from one shade to another. The inner life is all this at once, variety of qualities, continuity of progress, and unity of direction. It cannot be represented by images. But it is even less possible to represent it by concepts, that is, by abstract, general, or simple ideas. It is true that no image can reproduce exactly the original feeling I have of the flow of my own conscious life. But it is not even necessary that I should attempt to render it, if a man is incapable of getting for himself the intuition of the constitutive duration of his own being, nothing will ever give it to him, concepts no more than images. Here the single aim of the philosopher should be to promote a certain effort, which in most men is usually fettered by habits of mind more useful to life. Now the image has at least this advantage, that it keeps us in the concrete. 
no image can replace the intuition of duration but many diverse images borrowed from many different orders of things may by the convergence of their action direct consciousness to the precise point where there is a certain intuition to be seized by choosing images as dissimilar as possible we shall prevent any one of them from usurping the place of the intuition it is intended to call up since it would then be driven away at once by its rivals by providing that in spite of their differences of aspect they all require from the mind the same kind of attention and in some sort the same degree of tension we shall gradually accustom consciousness to a particular and clearly defined disposition that precisely which it must adopt in order to appear to itself as it really is without any veil but then consciousness must at least consent to make the effort for it will have been shown nothing it will simply have been placed in the attitude it must take up in order to make the desired effort and so come by itself to the intuition concepts on the contrary especially if they are simple have the disadvantage of being in reality symbols substituted for the object they symbolize and demand no effort on our part examined closely each of them it would be seen retains only that part of the object which is common to it and to others and expresses still more than the image does a comparison between the object and others which resemble it but as the comparison has made manifest a resemblance as the resemblance is a property of the object and as a property has every appearance of being a part of the object which possesses it we easily persuade ourselves that by setting concept beside concept we are reconstructing the whole of the object with its parts thus obtaining so to speak its intellectual equivalent in this way we believe that we can form a faithful representation of duration by setting in line the concepts of unity multiplicity continuity finite or infinite divisibility etc there precisely is the illusion there also is the danger just in so far as abstract ideas can render service to analysis that is to the scientific study of the object in its relations to other objects so far are they incapable of replacing intuition that is the metaphysical investigation of what is essential and unique in the object for on the one hand these concepts laid side by side never actually give us more than an artificial reconstruction of the object of which they can only symbolize certain general and in a way impersonal aspects it is therefore useless to believe that with them we can seize a reality of which they present to us the shadow alone and on the other hand besides the illusion there is also a very serious danger for the concept generalizes at the same time as it abstracts the concept can only symbolize a particular property by making it common to an infinity of things it therefore always more or less deforms the property by the extension it gives to it replaced in the metaphysical object to which it belongs a property coincides with the object or at least molds itself on it and adopts the same outline extracted from the metaphysical object and presented in a concept it grows indefinitely larger and goes beyond the object itself since henceforth it has to contain it along with a number of other objects thus the different concepts that we form of the properties of a thing inscribe round it so many circles each much too large and none of them fitting it exactly 
and yet, in the thing itself, the properties coincided with the thing, and coincided consequently with one another. So that if we are bent on reconstructing the object with concepts, some artifice must be sought whereby this coincidence of the object and its properties can be brought about. For example, we may choose one of the concepts and try, starting from it, to get round to the others, but we shall then soon discover that according as we start from one concept or another, the meeting and combination of the concepts will take place in an altogether different way. According as we start, for example, from unity or from multiplicity, we shall have to conceive differently the multiple unity of duration. Everything will depend on the weight we attribute to this or that concept, and this weight will always be arbitrary, since the concept extracted from the object has no weight, being only the shadow of a body. In this way, as many different systems will spring up, as there are external points of view from which the reality can be examined, or larger circles in which it can be enclosed. Simple concepts have, then, not only the inconvenience of dividing the concrete unity of the object into so many symbolical expressions, they also divide philosophy into distinct schools, each of which takes its seat, chooses its counters, and carries on with the others a game that will never end. Either metaphysics is only this play of ideas, or else, if it is a serious occupation of the mind, if it is a science and not simply an exercise, it must transcend concepts in order to reach intuition. Certainly, concepts are necessary to it, for all the other sciences work as a rule with concepts, and metaphysics cannot dispense with the other sciences. But it is only truly itself when it goes beyond the concept, or at least when it frees itself from rigid and ready-made concepts, in order to create a kind very different from those which we habitually use. I mean supple, mobile, and almost fluid representations, always ready to mold themselves on the fleeting forms of intuition. We shall return later to this important point. Let it suffice us for the moment to have shown that our duration can be presented to us directly in an intuition, that it can be suggested to us indirectly by images, but that it can never, if we confine the word concept to its proper meaning, be enclosed in a conceptual representation. Let us try for an instant to consider our duration as a multiplicity. It will then be necessary to add that the terms of this multiplicity, instead of being distinct, as they are in any other multiplicity, encroach on one another, and that while we can no doubt, by an effort of imagination, solidify duration once it has elapsed, divide it into juxtaposed portions, and count all these portions, yet this operation is accomplished on the frozen memory of the duration, on the stationary trace which the mobility of duration leaves behind it, and not on the duration itself. We must admit, therefore, that if there is a multiplicity here, it bears no resemblance to any other multiplicity we know. Shall we say, then, that duration has unity? Doubtless a continuity of elements which prolong themselves into one another participates in unity as much as in multiplicity. But this moving, changing, colored, living unity has hardly anything in common with the abstract, motionless, and empty unity which the concept of pure unity circumscribes. Shall we conclude from this that duration must be defined as unity and multiplicity at the same time? But singularly enough, however much I manipulate the two concepts, 
portion them out, combine them differently, practice on them the most subtle operations of mental chemistry, I never obtain anything which resembles the simple intuition that I have of duration, while, on the contrary, when I replace myself in duration by an effort of intuition, I immediately perceive how it is unity, multiplicity, and many other things besides. These different concepts, then, are only so many standpoints from which we could consider duration. Neither separated nor reunited have they made us penetrate into it. We do penetrate into it, however, and that can only be by an effort of intuition. In this sense, an inner, absolute knowledge of the duration of the self by the self is possible. But if metaphysics here demands and can obtain an intuition, science has none the less need of an analysis. Now it is a confusion between the function of analysis and that of intuition which gives birth to the discussions between the schools and the conflicts between systems. Psychology, in fact, proceeds like all the other sciences by analysis. It resolves the self which has been given to it at first in a simple intuition into sensations, feelings, ideas, etc., which it studies separately. It substitutes, then, for the self a series of elements which form the facts of psychology. But are these elements really parts? That is the whole question, and it is because it has been evaded that the problem of human personality has so often been stated in insoluble terms. It is incontestable that every psychical state, simply because it belongs to a person, reflects the whole of a personality. Every feeling, however simple it may be, contains virtually within it the whole past and present of the being experiencing it, and, consequently, can only be separated and constituted into a state by an effort of abstraction or of analysis but it is no less incontestable that without this effort of abstraction or analysis there would be no possible development of the science of psychology. What then exactly is the operation by which a psychologist detaches a mental state in order to erect it into a more or less independent entity? He begins by neglecting that special coloring of the personality which cannot be expressed in known and common terms. Then he endeavors to isolate, in the person already thus simplified, some aspect which lends itself to an interesting inquiry. If he is considering inclination, for example, he will neglect the inexpressible shade which colors it, and which makes the inclination mine and not yours. He will fix his attention on the movement by which our personality leans towards a certain object. He will isolate this attitude, and it is this special aspect of the personality, this snapshot of the mobility of the inner life, this diagram of concrete inclination, that he will erect into an independent fact. There is in this something very like what an artist passing through Paris does when he makes, for example, a sketch of a tower of Notre Dame. The tower is inseparably united to the building, which is in itself no less inseparably united to the ground, to its surroundings, to the whole of Paris, and so on. It is first necessary to detach it from all these. Only one aspect of the whole is noted, that formed by the Tower of Notre Dame. Moreover, the special form of this tower is due to the grouping of the stones of which it is composed. But the artist does not concern himself with these stones, he notes only the silhouette of the tower. 
For the real and internal organization of the thing, he substitutes, then, an external and schematic representation. So that, on the whole, his sketch corresponds to an observation of the object from a certain point of view, and to the choice of a certain means of representation. But exactly the same thing holds true of the operation by which the psychologist extracts a single mental state from the whole personality. This isolated psychical state is hardly anything but a sketch, the commencement of an artificial reconstruction. It is the whole considered under a certain elementary aspect in which we are specially interested, and which we have carefully noted. It is not a part, but an element. It has not been obtained by a natural dismemberment, but by analysis. Now beneath all the sketches he has made at Paris, the visitor will probably, by way of memento, write the word Paris. And as he has really seen Paris, he will be able, with the help of the original intuition he had of the whole, to place his sketches therein, and so join them up together. But there is no way of performing the inverse operation. It is impossible, even with an infinite number of accurate sketches, and even with the word Paris, which indicates that they must be combined together, to get back to an intuition that one has never had, and to give oneself an impression of what Paris is like, if one has never seen it. This is because we are not dealing here with real parts, but with mere notes of the total impression. To take a still more striking example, where the notation is more completely symbolic, suppose that I am shown, mixed together at random, the letters which make up a poem I am ignorant of. If the letters were parts of the poem, I could attempt to reconstitute the poem with them by trying the different possible arrangements, as a child does with the pieces of a Chinese puzzle but I should never for a moment think of attempting such a thing in this case, because the letters are not component parts, but only partial expressions, which is quite a different thing. That is why, if I know the poem, I at once put each of the letters in its proper place and join them up without difficulty by a continuous connection, whilst the inverse operation is impossible. Even when I believe I am actually attempting this inverse operation, even when I put the letters end to end, I begin by thinking of some plausible meaning. I thereby give myself an intuition, and from this intuition I attempt to redescend to the elementary symbols which would reconstitute its expression. The very idea of reconstituting a thing by operations practiced on symbolic elements alone implies such an absurdity that it would never occur to any one if they recollected that they were not dealing with fragments of the thing, but only, as it were, with fragments of its symbol. Such is, however, the undertaking of philosophers who try to reconstruct personality with psychical states, whether they confine themselves to these states alone, or whether they add a kind of thread for the purpose of joining the states together. Both empiricists and rationalists are victims of the same fallacy. Both of them mistake partial notations for real parts, thus confusing the point of view of analysis and of intuition, of science and of metaphysics. The empiricists say quite rightly that psychological analysis discovers nothing more in personality than psychical states. Such is, in fact, the function and the very definition of analysis. The psychologist has nothing else to do but analyze personality, 
that is, to note certain states. At the most he may put the label ego on these states, in saying they are states of the ego, just as the artist writes the word Paris on each of his sketches. On the level at which the psychologist places himself, and on which he must place himself, the ego is only a sign by which the primitive, and moreover very confused, intuition which has furnished the psychologist with his subject matter is recalled. It is only a word, and the great error here lies in believing that while remaining on the same level we can find behind the word a thing. Such has been the error of these philosophers who have not been able to resign themselves to being only psychologists in psychology, Taine and Stuart Mill, for example. Psychologists in the method they apply, they have remained metaphysicians in the object they set before themselves. They desire an intuition, and by a strange inconsistency they seek this intuition in analysis, which is the very negation of it. They look for the ego, and they claim to find it in psychical states, though this diversity of states has itself only been obtained, and could only be obtained, by transporting oneself outside the ego altogether, so as to make a series of sketches, notes, and more or less symbolic and schematic diagrams. Thus, however much they place the states side by side, multiplying points of contact and exploring the intervals, the ego always escapes them, so that they finish by seeing in it nothing but a vain phantom. We might as well deny that the Iliad had a meaning, on the ground that we had looked in vain for that meaning in the intervals between the letters of which it is composed. Philosophical empiricism is born here, then, of a confusion between the point of view of intuition and that of analysis. Seeking for the original in the translation, where naturally it cannot be, it denies the existence of the original on the ground that it is not found in the translation. It leads of necessity to negations, but on examining the matter closely, we perceive that these negations simply mean that analysis is not intuition, which is self-evident. From the original, and, one must add, very indistinct intuition, which gives positive science its material, science passes immediately to analysis, which multiplies to infinity its observations of this material from outside points of view. It soon comes to believe that by putting together all these diagrams, it can reconstitute the object itself. No wonder, then, that it sees this object fly before it, like a child that would like to make a solid plaything out of the shadows outlined along the wall. But rationalism is the dupe of the same illusion. It starts out from the same confusion as empiricism, and remains equally powerless to reach the inner self. Like empiricism, it considers psychical states as so many fragments detached from an ego that binds them together. Like empiricism, it tries to join these fragments together in order to recreate the unity of the self. Like empiricism, finally, it sees this unity of the self in the continually renewed effort it makes to clasp it, steal away indefinitely like a phantom. But whilst empiricism, weary of the struggle, ends by declaring that there is nothing else but the multiplicity of psychical states, rationalism persists in affirming the unity of the person. It is true that, seeking this unity on the level of the psychical states themselves, and obliged besides to put down to the account of these states all the qualities and determinations that it finds by analysis, 
since analysis by its very definition leads always to states, nothing is left to it for the unity of personality but something purely negative, the absence of all determination. The psychical states having necessarily in this analysis taken and kept for themselves everything that can serve as matter, the unity of the ego can never be more than a form without content. It will be absolutely indeterminate and absolutely void. To these detached psychical states, to these shadows of the ego, the sum of which was for the empiricists the equivalent of the self, rationalism, in order to reconstitute personality, adds something still more unreal, the void in which these shadows move, a place for shadows, one might say. How could this form, which is in truth formless, serve to characterize a living, active, concrete personality, or to distinguish Peter from Paul? Is it astonishing that the philosophers who have isolated this form of personality should then find it insufficient to characterize a definite person, and that they should be gradually led to make their empty ego a kind of bottomless receptacle, which belongs no more to Peter than to Paul, and in which there is room, according to our preference, for entire humanity, for God, or for existence in general? I see in this matter only one difference between empiricism and rationalism. The former, seeking the unity of the ego in the gaps, as it were, between the psychical states, is led to fill the gaps with other states, and so on indefinitely, so that the ego, compressed in a constantly narrowing interval, tends towards zero, as analysis is pushed farther and farther, whilst rationalism, making the ego the place where mental states are lodged, is confronted with an empty space which we have no reason to limit here rather than there, which goes beyond each of the successive boundaries that we try to assign to it, which constantly grows larger, and which tends to lose itself no longer in zero, but in the infinite. The distance, then, between a so-called empiricism like that of Taine, and the most transcendental speculations of certain German pantheists, is very much less than is generally supposed. The method is analogous in both cases. It consists in reasoning about the elements of a translation as if they were parts of the original. But a true empiricism is that which proposes to get as near to the original itself as possible, to search deeply into its life, and so, by a kind of intellectual auscultation, to feel the throbbings of its soul. And this true empiricism is the true metaphysics. It is true that the task is an extremely difficult one, for none of the ready-made conceptions which thought employs in its daily operations can be of any use. Nothing is more easy than to say that the ego is multiplicity, or that it is unity, or that it is the synthesis of both. Unity and multiplicity are here representations that we have no need to cut out on the model of the object. They are found ready-made, and have only to be chosen from a heap. They are stock-sized clothes which do just as well for Peter as for Paul, for they set off the form of neither. But an empiricism worthy of the name, an empiricism which works only to measure, is obliged for each new object that it studies to make an absolutely fresh effort. It cuts out for the object a concept which is appropriate to that object alone, a concept which can as yet hardly be called a concept, since it applies to this one thing. It does not proceed by combining current ideas like unity and multiplicity. 
but it leads us, on the contrary, to a simple, unique representation, which, however once formed, enables us to understand easily how it is that we can place it in the frame's unity, multiplicity, etc., all much larger than itself. In short, philosophy thus defined does not consist in the choice of certain concepts and in taking sides with a school, but in the search for a unique intuition from which we can descend with equal ease to different concepts, because we are placed above the divisions of the schools. That personality has unity cannot be denied, but such an affirmation teaches one nothing about the extraordinary nature of the particular unity presented by personality. That our self is multiple I also agree, but then it must be understood that it is a multiplicity which has nothing in common with any other multiplicity. What is really important for philosophy is to know exactly what unity, what multiplicity, and what reality superior both to abstract unity and multiplicity, the multiple unity of the self actually is. Now philosophy will know this only when it recovers possession of the simple intuition of the self by the self. Then, according to the direction it chooses for its descent from this summit, it will arrive at unity or multiplicity, or at any one of the concepts by which we try to define the moving life of the self. But no mingling of these concepts would give anything which at all resembles the self that endures. If we are shown a solid cone, we see without any difficulty how it narrows towards the summit and tends to be lost in a mathematical point and also how it enlarges in the direction of the base into an indefinitely increasing circle. But neither the point nor the circle, nor the juxtaposition of the two on a plane, would give us the least idea of a cone. The same thing holds true of the unity and multiplicity of mental life, and of the zero and the infinite towards which empiricism and rationalism conduct personality. End of Part 2